I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Frederick Lee. Lee is the Chief Security Officer at Gusto, where he leads information and physical security strategies, including consumer protection, compliance, governance, and risk. Before Gusto, Flea spent more than 15 years leading global information security and privacy efforts at large financial services companies and technology startups, most recently at Square's Head of Information Security. He previously held senior security and privacy roles at Bank of America, NetSuite, and Twilio. Lee was born and raised in Mississippi and holds a bachelor's degree in computer engineering from the University of Oklahoma. In this episode, we discuss COVID response, three-dimensional communications, security as an enabler, integrating security and engineering teams, the information security skills shortage, diversity and inclusion in cybersecurity, his early mentors, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Flea, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing well, Doug. How are you doing? Hanging in there. How are you surviving uh, the pandemic these days? Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm maintaining. I'm actually pretty optimistic. You know, I, I have a nice, uh, you know, setup here at home. Like probably like a lot of other nerds, I already had like a bunch of work from home equipment, like a nice desk. You know, because obviously you got to have uh, at least some infrastructure for gaming uh, at, at a minimum. So you know, you know, it's, it's been going pretty well, and, and I'm fortunate that I live in a city and a state that's actually been taking COVID very seriously. Uh, so I feel, you know safe within reason, right? Like anything else. And it's interesting because we're talking about this in a cybersecurity podcast. Uh, I think that we're doing a really good job of of working on harm reduction and focusing and allowing people to maybe better understand what risk is and and how to actually manage risk. So uh, I think it's actually an interesting, I think, experiment in raising and elevating the idea of risk management in a more broad sense to the population and actually getting to see how how the population responds when we actually, you know, try to give them information around their risk, give them some potential mitigations for their risk, but then give them the freedom to make choices about whether or not they choose to use that mitigation. And then ultimately what the impact of that is. I know that sounds super wonky, but uh, I, I do view a lot of things in life through kind of like that traditional security slash hacker land. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, in, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty excited, you know, uh, at a minimum, Taco Bell now does uh, food delivery, so that, that's just like a boon for everybody, except for those of us trying to watch our weight. So. Yeah, I know. That's it's funny. I've having not been on the road. It's uh, I've. It's, I thought I ate more when I was traveling more, and that seems to be not the case. So <laughs> I don't know if it's just stress eating. But it's funny, you, know, you talk about it in the terms of risk, and you know, really, it's it's you know, the unsexy word for what we do that I've said a couple of times on the podcast that if, you know, we had the RSA risk management conference, nobody would go to it or black hat, you know, was all about risk. You know, we, we, we like the word cyber. I use it in the podcast as it's, it's a, it's a catchier word, but the reality is it comes down to risk management. And I, it's, I've been drawing a lot of these parallels and looking at crisis response in general, you know, from a lot of incident response I've done planning and execution to say, gosh, you know, here's how I might've done things differently. And 
certainly kind of Sunday or Monday morning quarterback, a lot of response efforts, but, uh, do you, do you fall into that kind of mental mindset too, saying, well, you know, here's how I would measure the risk, but also how I would calculate the response given flipping all these different levers. Yeah, I, I do look at it uh, at that angle. Um, one of the things that I, I add in, and maybe you're already considering this in your mental model, um, is how risk impacts actual humans, right? And and how does risk, um, how is that actually interpreted by actual humans? And, and I mentioned that because, you know, when we like put on like our, our little security nerd hats, et cetera, and we're in our corporations with our, you know, silly suits and all that other nonsense, um, oftentimes we think of risk just purely from a dollar standpoint or, hey, is there going to be a breach or, hey, is there going to be all these other like tragic things? But I think oftentimes, actually the most common uh, scenario, we always forget about how risk is interpreted by humans and, and how do humans actually make decisions uh, around risk data and how do we actually give them risk data in a good way and in, in a good meaningful way? Uh, at least when, when I look at what's going on with the current pandemic, um, people are making all kinds of different decisions. And, and you, we want to assume that people are making decisions based on the information that they have. So including whatever their, their personal risk is, their personal profiles, um, their economic needs, like do they need to go to work or do, do they feel like if they don't go to work, they're going to lose out on something longer term. Um, and then their ability to understand how that risk has been communicated to them and how the mitigations have also been communicated to them. So like when we think about COVID in particular, um, you know, some of the initial responses, at least here in the U.S., when I read in the media people's uh, reactions to it now, it does sound like we didn't communicate that well to people. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I could have definitely done a, a better job of that in my personal uh, circles, or even my you know, business sense. Like, hey, what does COVID actually really mean, right? Like, um, how impactful could that be to you? How much do we know about this risk? And, and these all sound like just the common security things that we, we think of in, in our day-to-day -day jobs. Um, how do we actually think about the mitigations? Like, I think one of the things uh, that's obviously top of mind for a lot of people is uh, the controversy that, in my opinion, should not be a controversy around wearing masks. Um, but there probably were some things that, that led to people making uh, suboptimal choices around mask wearing. So for example, when we go back and reflect on some of the initial guidance that was given, uh, people misinterpreted, you know, N95 masks, you know, masks that actually do like, you know, that, that, that really, really intense filtering um, versus just cloth masks, which are really meant to be, you know, me protecting you from myself, right? So like the N95 mask is actually meant to be a, a mitigation uh, for me as an individual who may be exposed to COVID, but the cloth mask and, and the guidance we're actually getting now are mitigations that I would be wearing to prevent you from catching COVID from me. Um, I, I think it's interesting because there's so many parallels in, in the security world about occasionally where we as security practitioners may give people guidance and not meet them where they are, right? So, so with the COVID confusion, people just heard mask. They didn't actually hear N95 versus cloth. They heard mask. And so since a lot of you know people were actually saying, "Hey, don't don't you know, you know don't uh, you know steal all the masks or, or don't hoard masks, etc." They didn't realize that the professionals were saying, "Don't hoard N95 masks," and, and then they they interpreted that to mean like, "Oh, well, masks aren't really valid." Uh, and then later on, news came later. It's like, "Hey, we want everybody to actually wear a mask," and there's a lot of confusion there. 
Um, I know this sounds like a pretty, pretty long uh, analogy. I promise you I can have a point, which is some of the things we actually do in security, where we will tell people, hey, use this mitigation or don't use this mitigation. Um, you're not vulnerable to this thing or you're not vulnerable to that, or maybe you are vulnerable to this. And all those things can always lead to confusion. And that confusion can lead to either a hesitancy to adopt mitigation or it can lead to a delay of adopting mitigation. And, and we've done this so many times in, in the world of security where we've gotten it wrong, or it's probably worthwhile for us to share some of those learnings with, with the broader like ecosystem or those people who are just, their job is just understanding and managing risk. Um, I, I love like just, you know, kind of like you said, Monday, Monday uh, morning quarterbacking, uh, COVID and just other type events. I think COVID is a little bit easier for me to Monday morning quarterback. I'm solidly in that camp of not dunking on other security teams um, because they're, they're in the same, you know, in the same place that I am. And I just assume they're all making good choices. Uh, so that's kind of how I look at this, you know, pandemic and are there things we can actually be learning from that? Are there things that we could do better to actually share some of the practices that have been successful inside of uh, security slash cybersecurity, um, et cetera? Yeah, it's funny, you know, you, you, I can, can't help but think of passwords as a big thing yep. like that, you know, with masks, it's like, you told me to wear masks or don't wear masks. And the same thing with passwords, you said do long passwords. Now you're saying don't use long passwords and don't change. Just tell me what to do. And it almost comes to that, you know, when you look at an organizational population, whether it's uh, people with inside an or a company or a constituency of a country, they look to their leaders for some kind of guidance to say, yeah, here's the, the, <laughs> the red yellow, green, just tell me which of the options are and I'll, I'll kind of make that up. But I, I think to your point is we haven't communicated a lot of that, you know, organizationally, when you reflect on that as a CISO, how do you try to have that conversations both up and down? I think that's a unique, you know, kind of a spot that like say CISO ends up is you have to talk up, down, laterally. You, you have to be very kind of three-dimensional in your communications. A hundred percent agree. And this is, you, you, jumped ahead of actually one of the things I was immediately thinking when you were talking of, like, I think one of the things that's actually similar to what's actually going on with COVID, but also similar to the role of CISO, similar to the role of security teams, is the importance of effective communication, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, my job is really trying to explain risk to people, trying to explain options about how they can actually manage that risk and trying to give them as much insight into the entire ecosystem surrounding that risk. Um, my approach towards that is really embracing this idea of trying to meet people where they are, right? So, so the way that I, I communicate to engineers is very different than the way that I communicate to people in the rest of the exec staff. Like, so like our, our head of marketing or our, our you know, our head of employee engagement, um, you know, our even our CEO, my approach towards talking to all those individuals is different than what it would be for a security engineer. And my approach to talk to a security engineer needs to be different than what it is talking to a DevOps engineer or just to a regular software engineer. We have to make sure that our messages really are tuned to the audience. And I know it sounds super, super basic, but it's easy for us in the security world um, to just nerd out and it's like, hey, well, why don't you actually understand this thing? I, I want to talk to you about an Oracle attack or something like that. Um, you know, th those kind of things with, with something, you know, TLS related. And now all of a sudden I've lost the audience, right? Like my my head of, of legal um, cares about encryption, but my head of legal is not a deep crypto nerd. And so I need to make sure that what I'm explaining is the context of the problem 
and, and why this particular risk is important for the head of legal to actually pay attention to. Um, the same thing with, with the CEO. And, and one of the things that, um, that I actually I talked about quite a bit uh, a while ago was actually kind of like this concept of security practitioners, actually just people in general, uh, learning about love languages, uh, which, you know, I borrowed this from, from a book, uh, literally about relationships, <laughs> as silly as it sounds, because most people think like, hey, we're all nerds, nobody, in, in our nerd world cares about relationships or how do we get along? It's like, all oh, it's all zeros and ones. It actually turns out that the zeros and ones, the actual uh, technical stuff we do, it's probably some of the easiest stuff. It's the, how do we convince people? How do we actually, you know, talk to them in a language that they understand and resonates with them? Uh, and so at the CISO level, it's like, it's, it's a skill that you just have to master. And I think it can make or break a CISO. Um, I have no illusions uh, about me being perfect at it. Uh, I still have, have a lot of work to actually do there myself. And it's a journey I think more and more of us can actually learn from. Some CISOs are just phenomenal at it. Uh, and, and others, you know, not, not quite so much. But I think all of us have an area that we can actually improve there with regards to really making risk understandable. Because if you can't make the risk understandable to the audience, then they're not going to actually do the, the actions that you would want. Um, and, and it could just lead to overall frustration. There are tons of security people that are frustrated in their lives because they're like, hey, I'm giving you really, really good advice. I really want you to do this thing. I want you to make this change to the network or I want you to fix this piece of code. Hey, I want you to actually patch this server. Um, but without all the context and without the language that the recipient can actually understand, you're always gonna run into friction. You're always gonna run into roadblocks and you're always gonna be in this position where people will ultimately end up putting on their, you know, metaphorical mask too late. Uh, so so it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. Um, and it's still a lot of room for us to actually work on that just across the, the industry, not just CISOs, but everybody in, inside of security and probably even, you know, everybody inside of tech. Yeah, I, I think we, we kind of fall to our, you know, we kind of go to our comfortable corners pretty quickly when it comes to technology, because that I can control. I would say, you know, that people I mean, computers don't get hacked. People get hacked. There's usually some human element that fails eventually where somebody, yeah, something happened and there was a lack of communication discussing risk or something. There's a human element is ultimately the cause of most incidents and breaches. Oh, you know what? I, I, I'm going to agree, but disagree with you also. I love that. <laughs> um, because um, I'm also not a fan of dunking on people uh, because I, maybe this is me just being way too optimistic. I, you know, I definitely drank a lot of the, the Twilio Kool-Aid um, with regards to this idea that that software is, is such a powerful mechanism. And if we build software well, then we can start making some of these human like gaps slash failures or mistakes less, less, less obvious and, and less frequent. Um, so like, you know, a, a good example of that, like you mentioned passwords as, as, as an example. Um, passwords and having people pick good passwords has always been a challenge. But once we started introducing password managers, educating people on that, making it more approachable, making it easier, then people actually filled in that gap. So, so I would argue to say that yes, people are part of the kind of like chain with regards to actually security and where things can succeed or, or fail. But I, I think the bigger failure there is where we've missed the mark from a technology standpoint. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we talk a lot about at Gusto is this concept of actually making things lovable. 
Um, you know, Gusto, because of, our, of our, our, our customer base, a lot of our customer base is like, yeah, we're small, medium-sized businesses. And when you're a small, medium-sized business, you have so many other things that you focus on. Security probably is something you care about, but it's nothing you can be a deep expert in. So we have to make sure that security controls and mechanisms that we actually build are easy to use and easy to adopt by the end users. So, so you know, you, you kind of really embrace this idea of making security lovable. It's making it something that's really, really focused on not only the security control, but the security experience. We can actually shift a lot of those gaps uh, with some of those failures. That doesn't mean we actually, you know, rule out all things, um, but I think there's still a lot of room for us as technologists to improve there and not instead of just telling people, hey, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, let's make X, Y, and Z either the default behavior or the easiest behavior, the easiest choice. Um, and, and that's where I, I guess maybe I disagree with you there. Like we can do tons of stuff around education. We still want to do more of that. We want more and more people to um, be more proactive with regards to security. Um, but I think we as practitioners also need to avoid uh, the common pitfall, at least that I've seen, of assuming that people don't care about security. Everybody cares about security. Everybody cares about privacy. It's really about where on their like spectrum of things they have to care for that security and privacy actually fall in. And it also with regards to like, how do these things actually impact them on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, is it actually usable, right? So you think about your car, your car has an airbag, your car has anti-lock brakes. Actually anti-lock brakes is probably even a better example. Um, you know, you can learn how to do the same activity that anti-lock brakes pro provides for you in the event that you're actually having slippage, terrain is, is unsure, et cetera. But but we found that it's actually just better to make technology better, right? Right. If you we don't make. I don't need yeah. to go to yearly training on how my seatbelts, airbags, or ABS works. It just works, and that controls in place, right? Yes, yes. And people wear seatbelts because they don't want to die, right? Like you know, like I'm, I'm I'm a huge snowboarder. I wear you know a helmet because I don't when I smack a tree, I don't want to die. You know, like when, when I'm on my my motorcycle, I wear a helmet because I don't want to die. You know, all these things. But it's all approachable. It's all easy, and it doesn't take a lot for me to actually do it. Um, and, and I think sometimes we forget inside of security about what happens when we introduce friction to improve security controls and, and what that actual end user experience is. Um, you know, there's so many things that I think we as an industry can focus on more to improve the end user experience with regards to security. And that's both for those people that actually make, you know, like products that actually are consumer facing, but also for things we actually build internally. Right. So if you're a security team, what are you doing to make, you know, these lovable golden paths for the rest of your development team? So that if you're worried about certain behavior, well, just make that behavior, you know, really, really easy. Right. Make, make, make the good behavior so simple that your developers want to do that instead of doing anything else, because it's like almost like the obvious choice. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was helping design a program a couple of years ago and I, I thought. I was working with the IT team and leadership. I said, I have to make this almost unhackable in a sense for me. And I didn't mean in a malicious way, but where I couldn't get frustrated and go around the control. So every time I would try to put in something, I would say, how would I immediately become annoyed by this and then try to circumvent that control? Um, <laughs> and I feel like we, we design a lot of programs with that. It's like, oh gosh, you know, we had to put in security control, which becomes a productivity blocker. I guess, how do you start steering that conversation 
organizationally, uh, both to the users and leadership to say, hey, look, let's, let's put in things that are frictionless or like maybe kind of find that holy grail of we can have either maybe a productivity gain or at least less friction with the desired risk reduction. Yes, I, I love one of the things that you mentioned there, um, just because our approach here at Gusto really is about making sure that the security team is an enabling function, right? So that the security team is there to actually help accelerate teams for us to actually, you know, remove roadblocks or essentially remove danger uh, from, from the road, right? Like, let's let's stick with these like bizarre car analogies. I love I no analogies. Idea. You can do it all day yeah. long, yeah. <laughs> No, no, because, you know, like we were talking about, hey, you know, like all these various things you actually want to have in your car, like, you know, seat belts or safety, like maybe a good example in your car, modern cars now, a lot of them have headlights that just come on automatically, right? It's like, hey, you're going through a dark area, put on your headlights and we'll do that for you automatically because we we can detect when, you know, the the amount of light, the the lumens uh, outside in the ecosystem actually reduce. We need need to increase the lumens being projected from the car. Um, And so... That's actually a good analogy of the kind of approach that security teams can and should have, at least in my opinion, to actually be more successful. And it actually makes some of the things that we then introduce later more tolerable. Um, one of the things you actually mentioned is something that I think more security teams also need to examine, which is what is friction and, and when should friction actually be applied? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to mutilate the English language. <laughs> if, if, if you bear with me just Don't a second. Worry. Um, and part of that is, um, you know, friction probably should be considered a dirty word, man. I know there's probably a lot of security people that aren't excited to hear that. Um, that doesn't mean I don't believe that there should be additional security controls introduced. It's just that we should be in examining which things that we're introducing are causing friction and which things we introduce from a control standpoint or technology standpoint are actually introducing intentionality. Uh, and for me, intentionality is a good thing. Uh, we want people to make intentional choices uh, in those areas where like, hey, something might be potentially scary or those kind of things. We just, hey, you know, take a pause, take a breath, look at this action that you're wanting to perform. Are you sure you actually want to do it? Um, and, and those are good things to have inside of security, right? So you actually think about, um, we use a simple one that's actually relevant to a lot of people in the security world, two-factor authentication, Right. It definitely is a great control, but it also does a great job and it can be a useful tool to introduce intentionality. It's like, hey, I want to make a change to this data set. Okay, well, here's my little dual push that comes because I am making a modification to sensitive data. Right. For example. Um, And now I get a dual push and that dual push isn't meant there to be, quote unquote, friction. It's just to make sure that what you're doing is intentional. Um, there are other areas that I think would be patterns of, of friction that isn't good, right? So when we were giving everybody advice to like, hey, you have to have these extraordinarily long passwords, and you have to change those passwords every 90 days, that was actually mostly just introducing friction. And, and it wasn't useful friction because as you kind of alluded towards, people gained the system. They worked around it, right? Like you probably have seen users that, yeah, they'll pick one password and then what they do is, oh, okay. 90 days of hit, okay, I'm just gonna add a one at the end of my password. Oh, another 90 days is hit, okay, I'm gonna add a two at, at the end of my password, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's useful for security teams to be really, really, really aware of the cost of those security controls from a productivity standpoint, from an end user standpoint. That doesn't mean to actually get rid of controls, but it, it, at a minimum, make sure that we're being intentional around those controls and that the controls are meant to essentially increase intentionality behind sensitive actions. 
Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's the thing is it's, it's, I, I kind of agree that friction has become a bit of a dirty word where we, we immediately kind of go in with this negative mindset and that's probably not helpful. And I, I think, look, we're, you know, in security leadership, we, it's, you kind of, like, kind of say, we kind of get it from all angles sometimes. And one of the things actually going back to what I was thinking about with some of the COVID responses where I was watching Dr. Fauci's, um, testimony last week and people were saying, but you said this and what are you recommending? And I thought he did a great job and kind of that, um, a trusted advisor kind of role of saying, look, my job is to sit there and identify the risk. It's up to you guys to make the choices. And I said, here's the different things that you can do. I never said, close this, open this. I said, these are the best courses of actions. And then leadership has to make it. And I, I've seen that parallel also happen with CISOs before and folks in, in security leadership where they have to kind of fall on the grenade. And, you know, it's, it's always a delicate balance to identify risk in the organization and push it up. Again, I think there's a huge communications aspect, but have 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 you found that? I guess how's your journey been on that? Of saying, "Hey, look, I'm 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 here just to kind of be the um, you know the shed some light on a dark situation, but it's really for the leadership to accept some of that risk." Yeah, and and, and I love that because uh, you know our our approach, and what I think is actually one of the healthier approaches in general. Uh, for internal security teams is for the security team, as you said, to be a trusted advisor, right? I think when security works well, or at least when a CISO is working well, is that they are helping a company understand risk and manage that risk. On the understanding part, it's really about like, hey, let's make as much risk as possible, as visible as possible, and give as much context around that risk as possible as well. On the managing of risk aspect, that's where like, yeah, as a CISO or as a security practitioner, our job then is to give people options, right? And, and to explain it like, hey, here are various different solutions and, and suggestions that may work in your context with the limited amount of context that, that you can get as a security practitioner. And one of the most important things that we can also do uh, as a security practitioner is also hold teams accountable for managing their risk and, and to push back on them when they want to offload that risk onto security in an unhealthy way. And what I mean by, it, by an unhealthy way is when teams do, and this is probably a fairly standard practice, uh, even now with a lot of security teams, it's got like this role of security as a quote unquote approver. Um, there definitely are times where security should be approving things, but the majority of times security should be advising, right? And saying like, hey, given the circumstances and what I understand about your product, what I understand about what we're trying to do or what we're understanding about what we're trying to build inside the data center, these are the concerns that I would pay attention to. And these are some suggestions about ways to actually mitigate those, those concerns. But ultimately, the choice needs to be with the person that has the most context and who's also going to be responsible for doing the work. Like the, the silly lie that we tell ourselves in security is like, oh, yeah, I, I reviewed that code base. And so I know that it's safe now it's in production. Um, that may have been true like a decade ago, more than likely true, definitely like 20, uh, 25 years ago uh, when people when software was just slower. But now people do multiple releases a day. Uh, some of them are doing multiple releases an hour. So there is no way a security team can honestly tell you that they know that the thing that they reviewed is exactly the thing in production. The product team, however, knows exactly what's in production. And if you do a good job of explaining to them what their risks are and some of their options around that, I've found it's actually been really, really healthy for them to actually own that risk. 
Um, and to own the success or failure actually associated along with that. That doesn't mean that that security just completely throws its hands up because we should still be a, a kind of like a, a, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of like that, that firewall inside your car to still actually protect people if something actually gets too dramatic, um, help deal with incidents, help point out when there are risk conflicts. And what I mean by risk conflicts is like, hey, maybe somebody is building a product uh, and their product team A and they're making some risk choices, but wait a second, there's product team B who's also making some choices. And it turns out that those two things combine actually conflict. And we can't necessarily have both because it introduces risk in a holistic way uh, or systemic way across the entire company that maybe neither one of those teams actually fully understands. And I think it's also one of the key areas that, that security is extremely useful is elevating those kind of scenarios and helping to be a mediator uh, and to some extent, maybe a, you know, uh, somebody who can actually help bridge that gap there and bring everybody along and actually just point us like, hey, you know what, because of what team A decided, you know what, team B, we can't make the same choices. Let's actually look for a different solution. So it sounds a lot of it is, you know, kind of building that culture of trust um, yep. organization. So how, how have you been successful in that kind of, the, you know, cliche to say a little bit, but kind of reaching across the aisle a little bit? Um, <laughs> I think part of it is, uh, um stubbornness uh, to some extent. And, and, and I'll, I'll explain the stubbornness here. Um, not stubborn with regards to the advice that, that we give to people, but stubborn when people ask us to approve something. Like every time that comes up, we always have the conversation like, hey, we're not here to approve this. This actually is your choice, right? As a product team, we're going to give you advice and we're going to give you some options. We will also help build code and, and write things for you to help make your product even more secure. But this is still your choice and you are now responsible for what happens if this goes wrong. Um, and it's been my experience that when people understand that they are also responsible for the consequences of bad decisions, they generally make different decisions. Um, and, and, you know, the analogy I've used for that is kind of like the explanation of, of you know, when you're a college student, uh, at least for me, you know, being a college student, I remember when I got a copy of Quicken, and, and yes, I'm, I'm dating myself here, uh, for those that, that have never actually you know, bought software in the store, that kind of thing. Um, but like buying Quicken and actually seeing where my money went made me actually make different choices. Cause like, oh, you know what? Instead of, you know, having pizza every Friday, if I have pizza only one Friday a month, it means I can also go to the movies or I can, you know, buy this new video game, um, et cetera. And that's one of the more powerful things you can actually do for teams is actually show them really what their risks are and make it, obvious to them and be persistent that they need to own their choices and that they can't offload that choice onto security. Um, and, but also explain to them why. And, and when you give them the context, like, hey, look, yes, you know, I don't, but I don't have all the context. Me as a security practitioner, I don't have all the context about the product you're trying to build. I don't know your customers nearly as well as you do. You as a product, you know, um, you know, manager or a you know engineering manager, you know way more about the problem than I do. So I would be doing you a disservice if I told you that I can give you 100% the right answer. That is not always satisfactory to people, um, and for obvious reasons, because you know we as an industry in security have probably unfortunately trained people that, oh, we are the enforcers or we're the regulators. And it's like, oh, there's only one way to do things. And security is going to tell you exactly the way to do it. 
Um, and when they get this new approach, uh, which I personally find refreshing <laughs> and, and, you know, stress reducing, it, it does probably trip them up a little bit. But I've found that when people honestly see that you're being genuine and they know that you're still there to actually help them, they really embrace it. And I found that that's the last long lasting effects. And it turns people um, into more security practitioners than they may have been otherwise, because now they really do internalize like, oh, yeah, I should be thinking about these risks. I should be worried about what happens if there's a data loss. I should be worried if my customers um, have, you know, ha have their passwords stolen or those kind of things. And it really, really does shift the mindset ultimately to product you know, leaders also making better security decisions. You know, and part of that too is I was reading an article that was out there um, that you you've taken kind of a I would say somewhat unique only because it should happen it should be less unique let's say um, but it is too too common I would say where security teams end up on a different floor in a different area they're not seen felt or or part of a culture and where you've you know really kind of made. A change with that by saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna put security teams as part of the team. If we're a team, there's we're gonna put the players on the field." Talk to me a little bit about how how you kind of came to that choice and how well it's worked. Oh, um, I said it's actually working really well, and uh, maybe uh, uh, too well uh, because it turns out engineers love security. <laughs> we have fascinating problems to work on, and when they see that the security team is an engineering team. They're, the smiles just come out on their faces. They're like, oh, you're one of us. It's like, yes, we're one of you. I've been an engineer this entire time. I love writing code. Like that's how most of us, you know, quote unquote hackers or whatever we want to call ourselves got into this industry because we love computers, right? We love the technology. We love exploring the space and we like building cool things. Um, and, and that has been, you know, a major shift. But also one of the bigger things is that it's, necessary, um, or at least it's necessary in certain uh, in certain um, company cultures. And what I mean by that, it's like in particular here in Silicon Valley, a lot of our companies are engineering first, right? Like their DNA is that their founders were, were writing code, um, et cetera. So like Augusto, like all of the founders are all engineers, right? Like there's still code from the founders in the code base. And they understand that they built their their company and team around people that want to make delightful products. So there's tons and tons of engineers. And so when you are in that kind of environment, engineers need to trust you. And the way that you gain their trust is by shared destiny and shared, like shared projects, right? And them seeing that, oh, you also write code here. You also go through the same problems and friction uh, regarding how the build system works. So like if, if my team wants to introduce a new build tool, the other engineers know that my team is also going to be feeling that same, uh, the same effects related to that build tool. And so that gives them a lot more trust in what we want to do. It also means that the engineers know that we have the same experience with regards to people pushing us on deadlines or you know, features not working exactly as we plan them. They know that the security engineers are aware that engineers make coding mistakes. And that having that humility, having that common background, um, just just goes goes over in, in a wonderful manner. Um, it also impacts how we we look at hiring, right? And, and what we actually think of. So, like I said, one of my one of my big, I guess, uh, personal mandates slash goals, or at least beliefs, is that security should be lovable. And that's not just the technology, um, but also the people. Um, people should feel like they should actually walk up to any security practitioner 
and ask them anything like, hey, what kind of router should I get at home? Because I'm worried about, you know, hackers and I'm going to be working from home due to COVID or, hey, you know, what kind of phone do you use personally? Flea? All the way up to all these other kind of things. I really want uh, companies uh, to see their security team as a team full of helpers and enablers as opposed to a team full of regulators, right? Um, you say regulator and then people just, uh, um, but when you say like, hey, this is somebody here to help you, it's, it's a completely different conversation. Yeah, you touched on that a little bit too, you know, at least where, where I kind of hope to go with it about, uh, you know, staffing and, and getting people interested in cybersecurity. I think some of the things I've seen along that lines too is like, oh, you know, organizationally security people can kind of be the the land of no and so it's, it's shied some engineers and other people away from it because it's like oh you're gonna you know you're gonna handcuff me and i don't want to be one of those as well but you know what is your take on the you know so-called cybersecurity shortage and how we're doing as an industry to get people really on board with security really at all levels yeah so so um i think those two questions are actually somewhat related what i mean that those two questions like the, the statement about security teams being the land of no and the cybersecurity uh shortage are somewhat related because both of those in my opinion the answer is you need to have the value of finding yes um i think part of what makes the security team at gusto successful is that they take a find yes approach, meaning that, hey, whatever the problem is, let's try to find a path forward. Let's push it as far as possible until we can actually get to get you to the thing you actually want to do. Saying no is actually easy. Saying yes is where the actual work is and where the interesting problems are. Like that's how you build cool security products is, is by you know taking this attitude of finding yes. That's also how you build good security teams and good security people is by finding yes in the ecosystem slash the population. And what I mean by that is when you see these various different profiles and resumes, et cetera, uh, not tossing it in, in the bin just because somebody doesn't have a CISSP or whatever random you know, thing that, that you know, ISOC, et cetera, is actually trying to sell. Um, you know, it's more about finding the values and the true things you actually need inside of a security team. And that doesn't always look the same. So you might have a need for people that are really, really, really good at organization. Uh, and I cannot say this enough, how powerful good PMs are in a security org, but you can be a phenomenal PM and not be a hardcore hacker. Um, but sometimes those PMs won't get across the board. Um, you know, you look at other areas where this is actually useful. Um, and actually, I'll give a, an example. Like, you know, there are other people that have similar skills that could be in security, but we've actually previously just, you know, shied away from them. Um, you know, the example I'm actually I'm thinking of is organizations that have like risk, um, you know, teams or fraud operations teams. These are actually people that look a lot like a SOC analyst. They're looking at data, they're looking for patterns, they're looking for malicious activity. They're just looking at malicious activity in a different area. And just because they don't have the same experience uh, doing that in a SOC doesn't mean that actually can't be valuable to a SOC. Because the reality is a lot of things we actually do in security, it's not magic. Anybody can learn it. We all had to learn it at some point. And I think that's where we've actually maybe um, kind of, kind of hamstring, hamstring, hamstrung. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bad. I'm bad with words. Uh, <laughs> hamstrung, yeah. 
Yeah, um, you know, that's where we kind of like, you know, hamstrung ourselves, right? We said like, oh, well, this person needs to look like this per profile. They need to come from this school. They need to have this kind of attitude. Um, they need to, you know, fall into certain demographics. Like, oh, well, that person can't be too old or that person's too young. That person's too black. That person's too white. All these other kind of things. You got to toss all that stuff out the window. And you really got to think about, well, what are the attributes that are useful for a security team to have? Um, and those attributes can come in so many different different areas, like the attribute of being good at writing software, right? You know, if you can find a, a good engineer who's good at writing software, you can teach them security. You can have them just execute against designs from somebody else inside of the security team. You can take somebody who maybe has more of like, maybe even like a customer service type background, um, and they can be really, really good at communicating and understanding other people's problems. Understanding other people's problems is so valuable inside of security because it helps you actually find those gaps and where we've actually have missed, in particular, the user experience type gaps. And those user experience type gaps can be either technical or procedure wise, like so policies and things like that. Somebody's actually good at being empathic and really understanding the user and, and the pain points that we may in introduce. Um, somebody can be really good at organizing. Uh, which I know in particular when you're dealing with, with a bunch of nerds can always be a challenge, uh, you know, with all the cat herding. Somebody who's good at herding cats, though, is like worth their weight in gold. Um, and you can be so much more productive. Um, there's so many things that we should and could be doing with regards to this quote unquote cybersecurity, uh, I guess, talent gap, uh, which I still disagree with because I think it's more just a creativity gap more than anything. The people are out there. It's just that we're not allowing those people in. Um, and there's still just so much additional work that we can be doing and we can raise more people as well. Um, you know, I, I mentioned previously around having a lovable security team can, can be great, uh, but it can also be somewhat of a double-edged sword, but it's actually mostly a double-edged sword for the rest of the engineering team. Um, and it's a double-edged sword in just the fact that, oh, if you make it obvious that the security team can allow in people from all kinds of backgrounds, you get a lot more interest from people wanting to join the security team. And those can often be some of the best hires slash best additions because they already know something else about the rest of the business and oftentimes can bring context that the security team by itself will never have. Mm. It's funny you, bring, you mentioned that as a double-edged sword. I, I've run in that organizationally too, where I, I've gone with a very same, similar philosophy when I've built forensic and IR teams. I was like, we need to sit among the, you know, among the masses. You know, it's a good PR move business-wise. And then when we became the fun team and people wanted to hang out with us, it then became people gravitating towards, oh, you got your fun team to hang out with. You're doing, you're solving cool problems. And organizationally, I, I actually had a little friction management wise with, diff with different groups because they're like, you know, stop trying to poach my people. I'm like, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> making a welcoming, friendly environment. Like what's so bad about that? And it, it goes back to this whole culture thing. And I think a lot of it stems, you know, I'm thinking a lot about this lately because I think a lot of it stems from it, this IT mindset that we still kind of fall back to with a lot of cybersecurity positions is, you know, they need to have, let's lead with the technical skills first. And I've taken senior analysts off of, you know, those, the kind of client lead part of engagements because they just didn't have the human skills. And I took a, you know, a lower level analyst. I was like, can you please run with this? You're more organized and the client just likes you. And it brings down that person's anxiety and it's, how, how do we even like try to hire for that? That's where I've been struggling lately. Is like, do we even put a job rec out for that? Well, I mean, um, I think you know part of the interview process 
if, if you're not doing it, everybody should be doing this. Your interview process really should have a lot more people. At least half the people on the interview panel should be outside of the security team. Um, even better if they're non-technical to, to see, can this person actually communicate? Do they come across as the, you know, quote unquote security jerk, right? Um, and and I, lo- I love the example you actually just mentioned there, Doug, because I, I know that I've experienced that where I've had, you know, and I may have even been that person where it's like, wow, that person is really smart, but they're a jerk. And so nobody wants to listen to them. Um, but we can take this person who may not be, may not have as much of a technical background, but people will actually listen to that person. And, and ultimately what we want to do in security is change behavior, influence and change behavior. It doesn't matter if we have the best idea if nobody wants to listen to that idea. Um, how do you actually screen an interview for that? Um, the, the screening process is always difficult. And that's just the nature of how we make resumes. Um, meaning that if the person doesn't supply that information, it's hard to find it inside the resume, but there are things you can actually look for in the resume, right? Like if somebody's like, hey, you know what? I, um, I led a Boy Scout troop or I organized something at my church or I'm involved in this uh, you know, political organization. Um, you know, what are their hobbies? Like what are the things that you do outside of work that also bring them joy? And what are the things that require them to navigate relationships? And, and really navigating relationships is kind of key to that. I, I mentioned some of those previous examples, like, hey, if you are a scout leader, you're having to navigate relationships with a lot of like, you know, like young kids that aren't, aren't fully, you know, fully formed as humans and dealing with their emotions and ideas. If you're doing something inside your church, essentially anytime you have more than three people, there's some kind of relationship navigation having to go on and, and brokering of that. And, and there are signals that you can find inside of CVs to help you with that. Um, ultimately, though, a lot of that stuff kind of comes across inside of the interview. And, and it really is one of the things you should pay a lot of attention to. Um, this isn't to say that you should pay attention to uh, what, what I still can consider like the most horrible term in Silicon Valley, this idea of cultural fit, because really that's, you know, a, a euphemism for racism. Um, but you do need to actually pay attention to how people interact and how they treat people on the interview panel. Right. And, and occasionally you want to toss in other people on the panel to just mix it up and make sure that you're getting a a wide gamut of different personalities and different types of profiles that person may come in contact with on a day to day basis. Like, you know, if you have a hardcore security engineer, you know, have them talk to a you know product manager who maybe may not be as technical and have them work through a problem together and then see like, hey, product manager, what was your experience having to have a conversation with this person? Um, and, and I think those are actually healthy ways to actually kind of gauge some of those things. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, the, the cultural fit thing is is a thing that annoys me too quite a bit because it's like, it's like there's a lot of bias that goes into saying we want somebody to be just like me. And I'm like, I don't want to hire another me. I am already me. I know what I think. I don't trust myself enough, much less do I want to be in an echo chamber. Um, so it becomes really difficult to try to say like, how do you, but I, I love that approach saying, look, get in to talk to the people because we all say we want people with communication skills, problem solving skills. But unless you're really interviewing for that with other people that communicate different, look different, think different, you're never going to get that gauge of somebody. Well, yeah, and, and yet you have to be thoughtful and I'll bring back the word again. You have to be intentional. Right, you can't do this on on autopilot. Um, and, and I love one of these you also talked on, uh, touched on Doug, because having a diverse team, I don't want to hire somebody who looks just like me. Um, 
has so many benefits from a security standpoint because there's so many lived experiences that we bring to the table as security practitioners that influence how we make decisions. Like if I'm thinking through a threat model and going through a threat model exercise with somebody, am I thinking about how this product may be used to abuse somebody that's married or maybe they're, they're getting divorced? Well, I, I'm, I'm not married and I, I haven't been through a divorce, at least not that I know of. And so it, it's one of those things like, well, I, you know, having that perspective on a team is actually useful. Um, you know, obviously this is all audio, so, so people can't see, but I'm six foot one, you know, about 250 pounds and I'm black, right? So my experience walking down the street, uh, my experience actually dealing with things is actually different than like a small Asian lady, right? So, so you know, I use the example of one of my friends, uh, you should totally get her on the podcast, by the way, she, she's uh, the CISO of Segment. Uh, I love Colleen, she's phenomenal, uh, just, just a great security leader. But Colleen is really, really tiny and we have different threat profiles and she would bring to the table something different than I could because she knows what that perspective is like and she can actually think through problems in a much broader way uh, from that angle at least than I can. And that's really, 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 really useful for a security team to have in particular because our job is thinking about risk and thinking about how all these various things can, it can impact uh, end users and our end user are not monolithic, our end users are not homogenous. And because of that, it's even more important that our security team, those whose job it is to help defend and protect are also homogenous. I think that, you know, one of the reasons I started the podcast was, and I still get the question at least once a day, if not many times more is, well, how do I get started in cybersecurity? And I'm like, there's, I, I wish there was a recipe. Um, and, you know, part of the goal of this podcast was to shed a light on that we all come from so many different backgrounds age and that's what's kind of made the industry fun first of all fun to be around because there's a lot of i you know there should be way more diversity but at least from a background perspective not everybody's fit this very four-year three-year you know mold uh but how did you get started i mean what was your journey into what we call <laughs> cybersecurity? Yes, uh, my journey into cybersecurity, and, and I'm definitely going to be uh, dating myself. You know, obviously this was back in dial-up BBS days, and you know, I I came across uh, an article about a gentleman. Uh, you know, I guess you know his official name or his legal name is John Lee, um, and he was actually the first living like like the first black hacker that I'd actually seen like in the news or just in general. Um, and he was probably actually the first real black person in technology that I was aware of. And that, that was inspiring for me. Um, I learned a lot by reading like, you know, about his background, some of the things and activities that he got into, um, you know, useful indiscretion, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, the path back then is different than the past for a lot of people now. Um, but it, it was something I was always constantly interested in. But the reality is, is that, you know, I, I was fortunate enough, I had, had phenomenal parents, even though we didn't have money, um, they made sure that every single one of their children went to college. I went to school to be an electrical engineer. Like I wanted to build electric vehicles and electric race cars uh, specifically at, at the University of Oklahoma. Um, and as part of that, security wasn't a job you could even have back then. So, so really my, my way of actually falling into security was, you know, I did some sysadmin type jobs. And back then, if you were, did it systems administration by, you know, de facto, you were also a security engineer because your job is also protecting the, the servers. Um, and ultimately, I kind of parlayed that into additional just programming jobs 
And ultimately I ended up, you know, at Bank of America, I was actually working on writing authentication systems and, and helping B of A with bank to bank authentication systems. Um, and during that process, I just got curious inside of Bank of America. I found uh, some concerning vulnerabilities at B of A. I, I told my boss about it and told, ultimately told the CISO. Uh, my entire thought process was I was going to get fired. It's like, hey, you found this thing for being curious and it's actually kind of dangerous. But instead, Bank of America's like, hey, we should really invest in application security. Let's make an app, AppSec team. Flee, you're on the AppSec team. And the rest maybe is somewhat history. I don't want to diminish too much about my background, but I think probably the most important thing about my background is it's probably the most common background. And what I mean by that is there wasn't a path. There wasn't anything traditional. There wasn't a class I could go to. Um, the thing that I think helps people get into security is the desire to get into security. Uh, I mentioned to you, you know, about a, a previous employer where I, I took somebody from the risk operations team and actually brought them on the security team. And I brought that young gentleman on um, because he was interested in security. He wanted to do the work and he wanted to learn about security. I think that's the true path into security. Work is complicated. And, and, and I don't want to do disservice to any of your listeners or anything like that because it's not all roses and things like that. I think what a lot of people struggle with is how do you get that first security job? If you say that you are security, I am going to say you are security. I don't like this idea that people have to, it's like, oh, well, what, you know, what CVEs do you have? You know, who did you pop? You know, what was your handle back in the day? What crew were you with? Um, I don't like all the gatekeeping and status checking. If somebody says they're security, I take them at their word, they're security. Now we can we can talk about levels of their sophistication and what their experiences are and what they're capable of. That's a different conversation. I think the real challenge for a lot of people is how do you get that first job in security? So with that, it sounds like you you've mentored quite a few people, but who were some of your early mentors if there's if there's people that really kind of came to mind and, and how they've kind of helped you or shared some wisdom with you? Oh wow. Um so obviously, you know, John Lee, John Threat, uh, all his various different names. He's still a role model for for me now. Uh I, I'm fortunate that I actually am in contact with him. I actually get to occasionally chat with him and talk to him. Uh you know, continue to actually get some guidance from him. Um I would also say uh Cord Campbell. He's actually a gentleman uh, who started one of the largest ISPs in Oklahoma of all places. Um and partially because not only was he a mentor, which is actually great, but the more important thing was, was that he was also a sponsor. Um, he gave me opportunities. He gave me freedom. He gave me room to fail. And that was super important. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I have so many different mentors. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my father. Um, and I know maybe it's like stereotypical, but for me, it's actually really instrumental just because my dad always taught us that it was important to not only learn about things, but also learn how things really work. Like what is underlying in there? It's like, hey, if, if you have a car, it's important to also understand how the car works. Because if you understand how things work, you can make improvements, you can make adjustments, you can fix things yourself, you can make better choices. Um, and he also taught, uh, which I think is actually something that's fundamental for, for a hacker. He taught, him and my mother both actually taught us grit. Like the idea that you're going to work at things and you're not going to be good at them. You're going to fail, but it's important to actually get up. And even more so, it's important not to quit. Um, on the security side, I would say probably some of my biggest mentors and influences, uh, Dr. Gary McGraw, you know, from Sigital, uh, Synopsys, et cetera. I still kind of- Yeah, I had him on early in the podcast, the guys. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, he, 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 I always kid with him because he's kind of like, you know, the godfather yeah, of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's like, 
I told him like Gary, you have all these little babies out here. You 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 made a lot of like you know there's like like this fleet of little baby McGraws that are out in the world now because of his influence. Um, and then you know when when I mentioned Gary, I, I you know I have to mention uh, Brian Chess, who's you know the co-founder or Dr. Brian Chess, co-founder of a uh, of Fortify, because he also took a really big chance on me, right? Like I, I was at Bank of America, just get another like you know banking you know wonk. Uh, you know, still doing security, but it was like, hey, Flea, you should come out here to California and we're working on this startup. And, you know, he definitely has kind of like that mad scientist vibe to him. It's like, hey, let's do some crazy stuff and let's take some chances. Uh, and then probably finally um, a mentor, sponsor, uh, hopefully at least partially consider him, I consider him a friend, maybe he considers me a friend also, uh, was my previous boss, Sam Quigley uh, from Square. And, and it's just because he was so instrumental in helping me really, really understand the power of engineering and, and how far you can really push that. I probably dipped my toe into that prior to actually, uh, you know, joining at, at Square, um, but he really, really accelerated that. So I know it's actually a long list. I, I can't no. just give you one mentor because yeah. there's so many, but I, I think one of the things that's important in that when we actually go through these lists, isn't just who the mentors are, but who the sponsors are. Uh, sponsors make such a big difference. And what I mean by sponsor, who is that person who can open doors for you and put you into the position to have the opportunity. Mentors can give you a lot of great advice, a lot of great feedback, um, but it's even more useful to have somebody who can say like, hey, I think Flea would be a good candidate for this job. Hey, I think Flea would be a good candidate for this project. Getting those opportunities, and I think that's where a lot of the frustration in the cybersecurity career um, ecosystem is. It's those people looking for that first job, because once you can get that first role, or that first stretch role that's outside of your, your comfort zone, that's how you can actually start building your career um, and getting those people who are willing to actually, you know, take those chances on you. Yeah, and you brought up a good point in that, you know, my my father was along the same way, dude. Like I consider him a, a huge mentor and, and hero, but, you know, it's just like, look, things are gonna, they're not going to always work out. For the most part, they're not. Um, and, and you kind of learn from your failures. Is there, if you had to kind of pick maybe one, is there any particular failure that sets you up for future success? Oh, wow. That is a really, really, really good question. Um, can kind of reflect back into a childhood failure. Absolutely, they hate they, they, they all they all build on on to where we get to today. So yeah, yeah. Um, it was actually a failure. So, so for my parents, because we didn't have money, education was just ultra ultra important to them, and and giving us all kinds of various opportunities to be educated and actually build ourselves into well rounded individuals was really important to them. One aspect of each of their children being a well-rounded individual was actually for each one of us to learn to play at least one instrument. So if you grew up in the Lee household, uh, you were required to pick an instrument and learn to play it. And part of their intent uh, wasn't to like, you know, create a, a children's band or anything like that. It was for them to teach us the value of practice and the value of failure and the reason why practice is necessary. So where I'm going with this is um, one of the instruments that, that I picked was the the saxophone and actually got pretty good. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I would say really good. Um, but I let hubris probably get in my way for certain opportunities. And I remember uh, for other band nerds out there, uh, I remember losing first chair, right? So first chair is like, oh yeah, you, I'm, I'm, I'm like alpha band nerd now, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, Obviously, I'm, an, I'm a cybersecurity podcast, so it should be no secret that I'm a nerd. Um, but that was instrumental to me because my parents were like, you know, they didn't 
forced me to be first chair. They didn't force me to make straight A's. What they forced us to do was to always try our best. And when I lost first chair, uh, my parents are like, well, why, why did you lose first chair? Um, did you practice enough? We noticed you weren't actually practicing that often when you came home from school. So what's the problem there? And that, that failure was instrumental to me because it was something I cared about. And it was like, oh, and my dad was like, well, look, you know, you can be upset about this, but what you should be upset about was what could you control that you didn't control? And what I could control was my practice. Um, and I've even, even you know, told this to other people, like, if you're upset about something, uh, don't be upset about the data, change the data, right? And so if you're upset about, hey, you know, um, I didn't meet my metrics or, or X, Y, and Z, um, you know, I'm also a cyclist. And if I'm, if I'm upset because I, I can't climb a hill as fast as my friends, it's not really the hill's fault because I can actually change those things. I can actually change how much I train. I can change how much I practice. I can change, you know, some of my effort in, into my work. Um, you know, at Gusto, et cetera. And so that's probably one of the more important lessons that was instilled upon me. Like I still still thank my parents for that today. Like they laugh when I call them because, you know, my parents are super Southern. So it's like every single phone call is like, oh, we're so proud of you, baby. Yeah, yep, we love you so much. You're always making us. And I was like, hey, this, is, this isn't my work. This is your work. You, you, you helped me learn the value of hard work. And I think it's also one of the things that a lot of people miss out on when they think about getting into security. Um, it is hard work, right? There aren't really a lot of shortcuts around that part. And I think sometimes people are looking for advice and the advice they're looking for is the shortcut. And there really isn't a shortcut. And so one of the most valuable things you can actually learn is, is hard work. Uh, as, as I tell my team all the time, embrace the grind, right? You got to You got to You got to put the time in sometimes. It nonstop, I found, you know, that's the one thing there's there. I mean, we, it's a cliche to say that, you know, security is a journey that never ends, but it's true. I mean, you really yeah. have to learn every day. There's a new threat. There's a new technology. You're, you're constantly having to relearn. Oh, yeah. And, and I personally love it. I, I get a lot of fulfillment out of it. Um, but it is one of those things I think some people forget about, like the stuff that the security things that I was doing at Bank of America are not the kind of security things I should be doing at Gusto. Like there's there's some common themes, there's some common patterns, but the technology is different. The people are different. The world itself is different. Um, we think about COVID right now, the world of COVID is different, right? And so what we're actually thinking from a security standpoint should probably also be different. Absolutely. Flea, I love talking to you. Where can people find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs, um, yeah, so I, I guess I use Twitter. <laughs> so um, sporadically, that's probably the, one of the places you can actually find me. Uh, my Twitter handle is just Frederick L, F-R-E-D-R-I-C-K-L. Um, and, and also, if people actually just want to reach out to me, LinkedIn is actually a really, really easy way um, to actually learn more about me. Um, you can learn more about me. You can learn more about Gusto. You can learn more about why I'm so passionate about the things that we're doing and also why I'm so passionate around applying some of the security skills and privacy philosophy that I picked up at other places here at Gusto and how kind of like that actually interweaves. Um, I really do like being at companies, and you'll see this on my LinkedIn, that are all about helping humans, right? And, and Gusto is just such a great place to do that. Um, and I try to keep my door open for people that are interested not only in Gusto and joining the security team, but maybe who are just interested in actually joining the, the security community. And if I can leave it one parting word uh, or words, it would be that if you are a listener uh, of Doug's great podcast here and you wonder whether or not you are security, you are security. Uh, if you say you are security, you are security. 
and if you need help, that's what the community is here for. The hacker community started about freeing and sharing knowledge, and it's still there. Um, and if you have problems finding that, feel free to hit me up. I, I will try my best to help you as much as within my power and time. I love it. Yeah, big big motto I have is give to get. So uh, I will be sure to put all your information in the show notes. And I, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much. No, yeah, this is this is a phenomenal conversation. I, you know, I, I love being on here, and thank you so much for uh, giving us the honor. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Cheers. Bye bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.